Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. Society needs this sector. A vibrant third sector of education is integral to society. The third sector makes the present possible, and it also provides learners with the resiliency to make the leap to whatever the future brings, and it provides learners with the skills and knowledge and insight needed to help shape that future, hopefully for the good of us all. I'm Jeff Cobb. I'm Salisa Steele, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. We're kicking off the new year of the podcast with a seven-episode series dedicated to the third sector of education. Over the course of this episode and the six that will follow, we'll define the third sector of education and, through conversations we've had with thought leaders and practitioners working in the third sector of education and our own understanding of the learning landscape, we'll explore the sector's role in the world today and the challenges and opportunities it faces now and in the years just ahead. Our hope is that this look at the third sector might spark some ideas for you, the listener. That is, we hope you'll be an active listener, attuned to the possibilities and implications in what you hear. So, Salisa, we're calling this series The Surge of the Third Sector. So, let's talk here at the outset of episode 258 about the third sector of education and what we mean by the term. And what we mean is highly relevant as the third sector of education is a term you coined, Jeff, and I picked up on the term too, and we've both been using it for several years at this point. So given that it's your term uh, originally, it seems you should get first shot at explaining it. Well, sure. So to explain the third sector of education, let's talk about the other two sectors. The first sector is the pre-K through high school system that serves children. Then the second sector covers higher education that grants degrees to the lucky among us. Both those sectors are well-known here in the United States and in most countries around the world, though the nomenclature may differ. The third sector of education, though, is less familiar, but it's definitely not new. That third sector serves the millions of adults who continue to learn and grow in the decades that follow their secondary and post-secondary education. Many providers make up the third sector. There's corporate learning and development, learn tech companies, even social networking companies like Facebook and LinkedIn. There's community education. And of course, there are learning businesses, which is where leading learning focuses. Learning businesses are a key part of the third sector of education, and they include academic continuing education units, training companies, solo entrepreneurs, and trade and professional associations. No matter the organization type, what learning businesses have in common is that they are all in a market-facing business that sells education and learning products 
to adults. And I'll just underscore what you said, Salisa. The third sector and learning businesses, while they're tightly linked, are not synonymous. The third sector is bigger. Learning businesses are one part of the third sector, a very important part in our opinion, but not the only part by any means. And we're calling this series the surge of the third sector because while the sector isn't new, we've seen it growing in size and importance in recent years. And now, one indicator of the growth is the financial investment we've seen in the sector and the mergers and acquisitions that are happening, too. And it's um, in ways becoming reminiscent of those dot-com days back when we first got our uh, our start in, in the whole learning world, Salisa, though I think it's probably a lot more rational this time. Uh, but if you look at what's going on, I'll just name some of what we've seen. There's a, there's a lot more going on than this. But, you know, for instance, investment in the, the learn tech sector, we saw thinking one of the emerging uh, learning platforms, course platforms, get $22 million in investment. LearnUpon got $50 million. Bizaboo, which is focused on that virtual events market, which just exploded, of course, with, uh, with COVID coming along, got $138 million. Udemy, which is kind of the, I often describe it as kind of the Amazon.com uh, of, of online courses, uh, got $50 million in investment. And then we're seeing acquisitions, and we expect to see a lot more of this, some roll-ups that are happening in the sector. So Community Brands, uh, a big player in the, in the association world, bought Pathable, uh, which is uh, another big virtual events provider. Symphony Technology bought Ethos CE, an LMS provider, and Cadmium CD, uh, which is focused on events. We had Open LMS by Ethink. Uh, Ethink, one of the big Moodle and uh, Totora uh, companies that, that's out there. And then Learning Pool bought Remote Learner, which is another one of those big uh, uh, Moodle companies that's out there. So a lot of investment, a lot of mergers and acquisitions going on. Um, obviously, a lot of focus on the potential in this third sector. Yeah, so we have that kind of investment and that M&A activity, and those attest to the growing interest in the sector and attention to the sector. But what's driving the growth that's behind that interest and attention? Well, we see five developments um, that have really kind of uh, coalesced, emerged uh, in recent decades, and these have laid the foundation for the growth in the third sector. So let's just quickly cover those five developments. And, and first, we'll talk about shifts in human life and work. Humans in general are living longer, though I do feel like I should note that the pandemic will likely cause a drop in life expectancy. Final data for 2020 isn't in yet, but life expectancy may drop by three full years in 2020. That's per the Centers for Disease Control. But still, Overall, the, the trend on life expectancy is likely to continue upward. And of course, then we're no longer likely to do the same thing over the course of our now longer working lives. We change jobs and even careers more frequently. That's driven in part by technology. We have automation and artificial intelligence that are replacing jobs or I think more commonly altering responsibilities as we humans harness technology to do our work. 
So definitely a lot changing in the world of uh, life and, and work in general. And then second, in recent years, we've seen a, a lot of advances, of course, in underlying technologies. Uh, the growth of mobile devices, for example, um, broader internet availability, and faster internet through technologies like 5G means more people than ever have the ability to learn anytime and anywhere. And I'll note, I just got my first 5G-enabled cell phone, so I'm, I'm sure it's going to revolutionize my own world. Well, and then third, we've seen an incredible surge in content in recent years. In 2020, YouTube users uploaded 500 hours of video every minute. 500 hours every minute. And that's just one type of content, video on one platform, YouTube. That same surge is happening across the internet. And that sheer volume of content exacerbates issues around search and trustworthiness. How do people quickly and easily find the most relevant, reliable content when there's so much information out there? How do they find the signal in all the noise? A question we're all going to be increasingly asking ourselves and certainly a place where learning businesses, as we've said many times before, have a critical role to play. Now, fourth, neuroscience and the science of learning have really made tremendous strides in recent years, or at least what we know about these things. Scientists have given us previously inaccessible insight into what happens to the brain as it learns. And that insight has helped us understand that the old model of finishing your education at, say, age 18 or or 22 or, or even 28 or any fixed time really is nonsensical at this point. It's kind of a non-starter. Humans need the time for space learning and effortful, effortful retrieval, that's effortful to say, and, and time to apply what we learned. Learning is a, a process, not an event, and of course, it's a lifelong process. And then fifth and finally, we have an even more recent development, the COVID-19 pandemic. The upheaval and disruption of the pandemic has sharpened the need for many organizations and individuals to be able to learn and adapt quickly, to pivot to new business models or new jobs or new careers as the old ways of doing things became unsafe or unviable. So these five developments, shift in human life and work, technology advances, the surge in content, strides in neuroscience, and the pandemic. These developments all contribute to the growing need for the third sector of education. We need education that supplements or even replaces traditional four-year university degrees whose half-life and cost are making them increasingly hard to justify. We need the third sector to help provide access to education that fits the needs of working adults with families who can't necessarily put their career on hold while they devote a couple of years to full-time study or who can't uproot a family to move to live near a physical campus. We need the third sector to help us learn about and leverage new technologies like artificial intelligence. We need the third sector to help us prepare for new careers and jobs, ones that may not even exist right now. And we need the third sector to help us remain in our current roles, too. We need the third sector to help learners navigate the changes and find the most relevant resources in a sea of information. Yes, 
Definitely. And, and everything you said, Jeff, boils down to this. Society needs this sector. A vibrant third sector of education is integral to society. The third sector makes the present possible, and it also provides learners with the resiliency to make the leap to whatever the future brings, and it provides learners with the skills and knowledge and insight needed to help shape that future, hopefully for the good of us all. Because the third sector of education is made up of many players and each player brings a different perspective, we are incorporating other voices into this series. Four conversations are part of the series. I speak with Cassandra Blassingame, Chief Executive Officer at the International Accreditors for Continuing Education and Training, or ISET. Given ISET works with a range of providers of continuing education and training spanning many disciplines and fields, and given ISET's role in developing and managing the CEU, or Continuing Education Unit, we knew Cassandra would add a valuable and broad perspective to our look at the third sector. I speak with Nigel Payne. Nigel has had a long career that's intersected with the third sector at many points. He's been involved in corporate learning for over 20 years, and from 2002 to 2006, he headed up the BBC's learning and development operation. He's written three books in the last five years, including Workplace Learning, How to Build a Culture of Continuous Employee Development. He co-hosts the From Scratch podcast on workplace issues, and he's a presenter for Learning Now TV, a live-streamed internet TV channel for those focused on corporate learning and performance. Nigel also teaches in the Chief Learning Officer Doctoral Program at the University of Pennsylvania. So he has a lot to draw on when commenting on the third sector, and he also brings a non-U.S. perspective. Nigel is based in London, and he's consulted with companies large and small in over 30 countries. I talk with Latrice Garrison, Executive Vice President of the Education Division at the American Chemical Society. ACS has more than 150,000 members, making it the largest scientific society in the world. And as you might imagine, keeping up with the professional development and education needs of that many scientists is a significant challenge. We've had the good fortune to know Latrice for a number of years now. She's been on the podcast before, and she once again has invaluable perspectives to share on professional education, lifelong learning, and the role of organizations like ACS in the third sector. I talk with Michelle Weiss, entrepreneur in residence at Imaginable Futures and author of Long Life Learning, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet. That latest book of hers does an excellent job of looking at the shortcomings of the current educational system, and thankfully she doesn't stop at cataloging those shortcomings, but she posits five guiding principles that the new learning ecosystem we need should incorporate. Michelle worked with and wrote with Clayton Christensen, aka the godfather of the theories of disruptive innovation, and she applies his term non-consumers to the context of lifelong learning and in fact focuses a lot of attention on non-consumers. Long Life Learning is a book uh, that's based on hard numbers and it draws on a ton of interviews conducted with adult learners trying to navigate the third sector. 
Michelle has also been on the podcast before, but with her new book, which I highly recommend, and her career that's been dedicated to those left behind and left out by traditional degree-focused options, we knew that she'd have invaluable perspective to share on the third sector, and so we asked her back. You'll get to hear from all four of these folks, Michelle, Cassandra, Nigel, and Latrice, in upcoming episodes in this series. We're also pleased to share that Blue Sky eLearn is the sponsor for this series. Blue Sky is a company committed to learning businesses and has a long history working to help providers in the third sector. For nearly 20 years, Blue Sky eLearn has been transforming the way organizations deliver virtual events and educational content. Blue Sky's customized, cutting-edge solutions connect hundreds of organizations to millions of learners worldwide. These include their award-winning learning management system, PATH LMS, webinar and live streaming services for short events to multi-day virtual conferences, and learning strategy and development solutions. These robust, easy-to-manage solutions allow organizations to easily organize, track, and monetize educational content. We're truly grateful to Blue Sky eLearn for helping to make this series possible And we're grateful for Amanda Davis, Vice President of Continuing Education Solutions with Blue Sky eLearn, who you just heard tell us a bit about Blue Sky, and Liam O'Malley, Vice President of Association Solutions at Blue Sky eLearn. Both Amanda and Liam talked with us and shared their perspectives on the third sector. When he and I were talking about the possibility for more partnership and more conscious, integrated work among different providers in the third sector, this is what Liam had to say. There's definitely a, a trend, uh, you know, years, maybe decades long trend at this point of um, opening up accessibility of things that have traditionally been uh, a bit more, um, or just a bit less accessible, Um in terms of education, in terms of networking, in terms of connection. And I think that technology, the World Wide Web, Google, uh, a lot of these things can, um, those trends can be largely attributed to them where once upon a time, that knowledge, uh, bodies of knowledge of certain industries might have required more investment to get to, um, uh, more effort to achieve, um, you know, the, the, as you mentioned, like the Udemy's, the, the value of the content that's out there, even looking at, um, even looking at university, uh, college academic level stuff. Um, a lot of that I think has, um, just become more accessible overall. Um, and there's something of, you know, the maybe crumbling is too, harsh a word, but the crumbling of the ivory tower a little bit, right? Where, where this stuff is more freely available, which I think is a great thing. But I think that organizations can sometimes get caught flat footed because of it. Um, and I know that that can be, again, especially in the association space, that can be a big threat to their membership numbers, to their dues numbers, because they're no longer providing an exclusive access level to something that once was much more exclusive. So when you say, um, you know, what awareness level do those folks have? Well, some of them are very aware and some of them, for example, in the, uh, in the legal space, providing CLEs, 
highly, highly competitive area now where there are lots of for-profits out there that are providing content that is uh, CLE accredited where someone can just go drop in, get the, get the numbers they need, and they're good to go. Um, whereas that type of education might have been um, a bit more exclusive um, you know, prior to this era. So Liam means accessibility, not in terms of usability for people with disabilities, though that's important, and I know accessibility for people with disabilities is very important to Liam and Blue Sky, but he's focusing on accessibility in the sense of the general public availability of content, things not being locked behind a paywall or tethered to a two-year degree, but content that's broadly available And he's right that broader accessibility has huge implications for the third sector and how providers operate and succeed, how to stand out among the noise created by the surge in content freely available, how to demonstrate value versus free offerings. And Amanda made an interesting point when asked about the level of awareness among players in the third sector of the other players. I do think that there are some blinders out there with, especially with organizations who are member based organizations where a a part of their revenue may come from education, or maybe it's just a, a value add to, you know, to their membership. I think that the organizations that I see and have strategic conversations with who are aware are those who it's a big dollar it's a big line item on their P&L, right? And so they are very aware of who their competitors are, or at least in essence, who their competitors are. However, when you really dig into that, a lot of them are like either, oh, there's so many, I can't even tell you, or, oh, here are the couple that we pay attention to because they're so closely aligned, you know, whether it be mission, vision, delivery, whatever that is, that is, is in alignment. Um, so I think that for, and those are usually regulated, you know, regulated CE spaces, your, your bar organizations, your CPA organizations, your medical organizations, those are really going to know a little bit more. Um, I think there are a certain amount of associations out there who are, what did I say, sticking their head in the sand a little bit to this, com- this competitive landscape. And they are holding strong to, one, we are going to be everyone to everyone, so we're not really great for anyone. And two, we're just going to do our in-person events, and they're going to survive, and everybody's going to come, and it's going to be fine. The world will open up. And I think that those are the organizations that are going to have some real concerns over the next couple of years. Um, because they're not going to have withstood this change, this shift, these new expectations that the learners are going to have. Uh, I don't believe that in-person will be going away, right? There will be a time and a place for in-person. However, I do believe that really embracing this, this delivery, this modality is almost a make or break at this point for, for these organizations.
I'll touch on a couple of things that Amanda brings to mind for me. First, the fact that sometimes organizations think they're more knowledgeable about their competitors and the other options their learners have than they truly are. Organizations that are really attuned to the third sector landscape have the potential to see and understand not only competitors, but also potential partners and allies, and to see that maybe their biggest competition is not another education provider, but the chance that learners might choose nothing. They might opt to be non-consumers, as Clayton Christensen calls them, and as Michelle Weiss uh, borrows his term in her book. And then second, the impact of the pandemic. Amanda talks about how COVID drove many organizations to up their digital game or to start offering online learning if they weren't already. But there are also some who resisted and insisted on the way things have traditionally been done. They're sitting out, they're sidelined for the moment, and I think she's right to say that that choice will cost them. Online delivery does seem make or break. So both Liam and Amanda's comments get at some of those fundamental developments that are driving the rise of the third sector. Liam is looking at accessibility and how that openness changed and is still changing the value proposition for many learning businesses. And Amanda is right, I think, to suggest that there's room for more nuance and understanding of the sector among many organizations. It may be worth questioning whether you really truly understand the alternatives and options available to the learners you wish to serve. Because we believe in the power and value of questioning, we have a couple of questions we want to invite you to reflect on. First, what's your learning business's awareness of the third sector of education? Second, how might a deepened awareness of the third sector help your learning business? So that first question, what's your learning business's awareness of the third sector of education? That's your level set. It's a simple question to help you and your team reflect on how you fit into a broader landscape. That second question, how might a deepened awareness of the third sector help your learning business, that can help prod you and your team from reflection to possibility and action. It might suggest new products or services or make the case for sunsetting a product given greater awareness of competitive offerings or it might show opportunities for partnerships and joint ventures. Or something else. We truly intend these questions to be generative, not closed or directive. We don't want them to lead to facile answers. We hope that considering these questions will open up possibilities. These are questions that may take months to answer, not minutes. In the meantime, you can find show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 258, along with a transcript and a variety of resources. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 258, you'll also see options for subscribing to the podcast. To make sure you don't miss the remaining episodes in this series, we encourage you to subscribe. And subscribing also helps us to get some data on the impact of the podcast. And we would be grateful if you'd take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcast. Salise and I personally appreciate it, and those reviews and ratings help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. 
Just go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple to leave a review and rating. Lastly, please spread the word about leading learning. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 258, you'll find links to us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.